Hello friends, and welcome back to our study on Paul's letter to the Romans. We're going to look today closely at chapter 6, as that's where you are in your sermon series coming up this week. But I'd like for us to back up first. Before we jump into what Paul talks about in chapter 6, I think it's best to remember what we discovered last week when we looked at Romans as a whole. And even more recently, when we look at chapter 6, it's very important that we look at chapter 5 so that we really get a sense of what's going on here. Remember that the whole point of this letter insists that the kingdom of God that's being made in Christ is not exclusive, but it includes, indeed it must include, both Jews and Gentiles. Before this, there was an identity that had been crafted among Jews that they were God's people. And indeed, this was a promise that God had given them, that they were God's special people. But what we're seeing happen in Christ is that while they are indeed God's special people, that title is being broadened through Christ so that all people can be part of this. And of course, that is what Paul insists throughout Romans was always God's plan that the Jews being God's special and unique people was always the vehicle in order to make the whole world God's special people. That it was their job really to grow into this all peoples as one people. And so it's very important that we keep that in mind, that that is the whole thrust of this letter, that it's not just that Gentiles are now welcome but actually the kingdom of God fundamentally, by its very definition, must include Jews and Gentiles. Otherwise, Paul says, God is only the God of Jews and not of the whole earth. Now, what happens in chapter five is that Paul argues Christ is the new Adam. Remember Adam back in the Genesis story, this human being from which all other human beings are said to descend. And what's interesting is that Adam never has a sense in the Hebrew Bible of being Jewish, but rather being merely human, sort of the fundamental baseline proto-human. And so all Jews come from Adam, but so do all Gentiles. And so Paul casts Christ as the new Adam, that it's not someone who's specific to one group or another, but rather we're all groups find their roots. But what's interesting is that in chapter 5, Christ isn't just the new Adam, he's very much the improved Adam, or the Adam as Adam should have been. And Paul explains how this works and why, most importantly for what we come to in chapter 6, Paul explains why it's so important to understand what makes Christ the new and improved Adam, because that has very uh, specific implications for the people that are part of this community that follow Christ. See, what happened previously is that family trees, such as the one we find in Adam and then the whole rest of humanity, the pattern goes like this. Someone lives and then they die. And then the, the people that they have made, the children they've had, the families they've had, continue on this tradition. Someone lives and then they die. 
And in Christ, Paul argues, is it actually works the opposite way. Someone died and then lives, and they pass on this same tradition. Just like in our human families, someone lives and then dies, and then their, their children will also follow this pattern. When we come into God's family through Christ, Christ died and then was raised from the dead and so now lives. And when we also participate in this family, we follow the same pattern. We die and then we are resurrected into new life. Now, of course, in this sense, the blood that Paul talks about is not the blood of childbirth and genetics, but the spilled blood of crucifixion. That is the thing that fundamentally draws and unites both Jews and Gentiles together into one family of God. So that's been the argument thus far. Thus far, we have seen this insistence. It has to be both Jews and Gentiles. It has to include everyone, regardless of their former identities as belonging to these very, very separate groups. At this particular time in history, uh, Jews did not eat with Gentiles. I mean, that's a pretty basic human activity, and they could not do that. And so the Christian communities were very uh, novel in the fact that there were people who still identified as Jews because that's what Christians were. They were Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah and followed him. And then there were Gentiles that also professed faith in this Jesus. And this whole community that were practicing Jews and still uncircumcised Gentiles sitting down and eating together, worshiping together, meeting in each other's homes. This broke all kinds of rules around their separate identities of what it meant to be not just a Jew, but to be in a Jewish community, and not just what it meant to be a Gentile, but to be a participant in a Gentile community. So we come to chapter six of Paul's letter, and he says this, what then are we to say? Should we continue to sin in order that grace might increase? By no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Paul thinks that this idea that someone, he's probably arguing with a, a potential question that he thinks someone might pose to him about these people who are now walking in this newness of life. Well, if God gives us grace and forgiveness uh, when we've sinned and we've repented, should we just keep sinning? Or can we just sin as much as we want and always get more grace? And Paul thinks that's ridiculous. He says, by no means. And in fact, in Greek, this really has the force of Hell no, <laughs> of course not. Uh, it's absolutely ludicrous that you might think so. He says, how can we who died to sin live in it? It's not even really an option. And so it's almost as if he's really looking back at chapter five and saying, no, we're actually physically, biologically not able to do that. 
It's almost as if the apparatus or the appendage or the part of the body, shall we say, if we were to give a particular body part that was like the thing that could sin, like hands, we have posable thumbs that can grasp, right? So if you have your, your sin hand, <laughs> shall we say, that's been cut off. You literally can't participate in that activity any longer if you no longer have the means by which to do it. And so he says, those of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death. That part of us that is a sinner, that does sinning, shall we say, does not exist anymore. Sinners sin. That's what they do by their definition. But we, we've been baptized into his death. And therefore, that's no longer an option. That way of life is not possible for us because we're not those people. And I think this is really important. Paul will continually do this, not just in the letter to the Romans, but in his letters to the Corinthians, in his letter to the Philippians, in, in these letters to the Galatians. He will always go back to how we think about ourselves. I find this really fascinating that Paul thinks that this issue of identity and self-image is really the most fundamental thing that Christians can manage. Because you can try to not eat meat sacrificed to idols, and you can try to not eat pork, and you can try to not do lots of things, but it's really hard when you keep telling yourself, but I'm someone who does this. Paul understands that the thing that has to be transformed first and most thoroughly is not our actions and behavior, but rather how we think about who we are. And as Paul says, if we were baptized into Christ Jesus, that means that we start to believe and think about who we are inextricably connected with who Jesus is. And so therefore, if I wouldn't say it about Jesus, if I wouldn't believe that's who Jesus is, then as a Christian, it does not benefit me to attribute that to myself. I, like Christ, have died and like Christ, have been raised to walk in newness of life. And that identity is the one that will actually give birth to the actions that produce goodness and righteousness and love. I also think it's very interesting that when Paul in this first part of chapter 6 describes this new identity, he says, can we go on sinning once we've received this grace? And I think this is an interesting and important discussion for us to just look at for a moment. So often we hear this term that God gives us this unconditional love, unconditional, no strings attached that Jesus is very happy to hand us forgiveness for all of our sins and we need do nothing in return. And I just don't believe that in that particular expression, that's what Paul means by that. In fact, I think the better word for us to use is that this kind of love, this identity we've been given as an act of grace is unconditioned, meaning we didn't do anything to deserve it we didn't do anything that made it so that we could or should receive it. However, it would be wrong to say that Paul doesn't think it is also conditional, meaning now that you've received it, 
there are things that are expected. There are conditions because every identity has conditions. If you go to medical school and you go through training to become a physician, you have the identity of a physician. And so it is completely within people's right to assume that you can offer medical assistance if someone is in trauma, if someone is uh, in danger of dying. Your identity conditions your behavior. There are things that you are capable of and not capable of based on how you identify yourself. And so I think it's very important, especially when we talk about sin and grace, we are talking about an unconditioned gift, but not unconditional. Your new identity does come with expectations and capabilities. And I think that's a cause for us to celebrate and not to feel pressured, but rather to think, look at what we are now capable of doing in this new identity. We are capable of living righteously. We are capable of doing goodness. And we are capable of giving glory to God for this gift. Paul then goes on to say in verses 4 and 5, Therefore, we were buried with him, him being Jesus, by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. I think this is also another point where we need to pause and think about what the implications of this are. If we were buried with him by baptism into death, we were also raised into newness of life. The Christian identity is not necessarily then a status or state of being, meaning you were dead and you're now alive, when we talk about walking in newness of life, that is not a status change where you go from unsaved to saved or from uh, unforgiven to forgiven. Although I, I do think that some of those uh, words do help us express the transformation that takes place um, throughout the process of receiving God's gift. But notice how walking in newness is an action. And it's an action that is connected to the being of that particular status. Being alive means walking. I guess that means being dead meant not walking. <laughs> but what's interesting about that is that neither we nor our actions are neutral. Notice there are no other alternatives. Paul says we died to sin, which we formerly lived in, and we walk in newness of life into which we have been resurrected. There is no neutral ground. There is no action we can perform, no status that we can have once we have been brought into this new life where our actions are not tied to the kingdom of God. And so this presents Christ followers with a real question about the way that they're walking in their life. If we think, seem to think that some of our actions are not tied to our status of being raised into new life, then we have a dissonance there. And so Paul says those actions are not neutral. 
There is nothing that, well, it's not, it's not new resurrected life, but it's not old sinful life either. No, those are the only options. And so that forces us to really look and really discern what is good. What actually looks like newness of life and what's just ways of taking the old life and making it not look quite so bad. And so I think that's a very important aspect of this argument that Paul is drawing our attention to um, in order that we really embrace this mental, how do we re-see ourselves? What old thoughts about not just ourselves, but our life and how things work and how the world works, do we need to let go of and let truly be replaced by something that's indeed new? That's not just something that the world has imposed on us and we've repackaged it somehow. Paul goes on to say in verses 6 through 10, We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed so we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we died with Christ, we believe we'll live with him. And we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. This is also one of those passages where in our humanity, we can often find a certain amount of despair. Not all sin is something we look back on and regret. And sometimes we think living without sin uh, sounds boring. We might think like Augustine, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. But I think what here draws my attention is that there's no uh, free or enslaved. There's always freed from and to and enslaved to those things, there is no such thing as just a freed human being, a just absolutely free human being. In this ancient world that Paul lived in, the idea was that all human beings are to a certain extent enslaved, that by our human nature, as not just Paul, but as Bob Dylan said, you have to serve somebody, that we in our human energies and passions will always devote ourselves to something outside of ourselves, And so the, the trick is, the, the question always is, are we choosing on purpose to serve something that's good or something that's not? And so Paul says that you can either be enslaved to sin or you can be enslaved to God, which is freedom from sin. And so we have to make that choice. But what's really interesting is that it says we will be free to live the life that Christ lives. By choosing to no longer serve sin and choosing to be enslaved to God, enslaved to righteousness, that we give ourselves in service to it, what we're actually doing is freeing ourselves. We're free to live the life that Christ himself lives which it says, death no longer has any dominion over him. He doesn't think about the possibility of death, the threat, the shadow of death in any of its forms. 
And so while we think that we wish we could hold on to this old life where we thought we were doing whatever we wanted, what we actually see is that this form of devoting ourselves in service to something good is actually freedom to live a life without fear and without regret. And then finally, Paul ends in verse 11 with, so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is one of Paul's favorite words, consider. He uses this word especially in uh, the letter to the Philippians in chapter 2. He has this beautiful hymn to Christ, and he says that Christ did not consider himself as needing to be equal with God and so emptied himself. He didn't regard himself as higher or better. He didn't regard himself as anything to think about, but rather poured himself out and then became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that's by this word, consider, or sometimes translated regard, that's how Paul explains how the sacrifice of both the incarnation and the crucifixion was even possible. How was it that Christ could empty himself of his glory? How was it that he could take on the form of a slave, a human being, someone subjected to all of the needs, all of the lack, all of the desires, all of the violence of this world? How is that possible? Well, it's not the actions themselves that where it began. But remember, just like we talked about in the beginning, it's how do you think about it? How do you consider yourself? Because if Jesus, by considering himself, not needing to compete with God or not needing to be equal with God or asserting his own power, that was the thing. That was the mentality that made Christ's amazing and beautiful sacrifice even possible. And so he says, so you must consider yourself a certain way in order to live that kind of life that Christ not only lived but died and so lives again. What story do you tell yourself about who you are? And how does it shape the way you behave? How does it shape the way you live in relationship to others? How does it shape the space that you make for those around you? What I love about this is that it begins with grace and then it constantly talks about how we consider ourselves, how we live our lives. And so those of us who follow Christ believe that we are ruled, we are enslaved, to a gift. What a wonderful thing to be ruled by. What do you follow? What do you offer yourself in service to? What are you inextricably bound to? A gift. It's been my pleasure to be with you this week and I will speak with you again next week when we look a little bit more closely at Romans chapter 8. <laughs>